This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Libby returns from her vacation tomorrow when Green Party leader Annamie Paul will be her special guest. For today, I'm joined by our illustrious strategy panel to talk about the Annamie Paul situation, among other hot topics in the news this week. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. Hello to you all. Hi, Jane. Good afternoon. So yesterday, the Green leaders spoke publicly for the first time since we learned that members of the Green Party executive were considering ousting Annamie Paul as leader and possibly revoking her party membership. According to Annamie Paul, she confirmed that a non-confidence motion against her plan for today had been cancelled and that no similar motions will be proposed before the next party convention, which is not that far away, August 20th. She also confirmed the membership review had been shelved. But the Green leader also admitted she considered stepping down, but decided to stay on because she didn't want to let down the Green Party members who voted for her, despite how painful she said this process has been for her and her family, especially since she values her integrity, which she says was called into question. Karen, I'll start with you. What do you make of Enemy Paul's public comments? Well, you know, I think she was certainly in a, you know, in between a rock and a hard place, really, because the party has basically pulled out the rug from underneath her. And she's, her staff has been fired, her her campaign money has been taken away, she doesn't have a seat, um, she's trying to lead the party, lead a campaign, there's this non-confidence vote, it, it, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just quite awful, really. Um you know, I thought the Conservatives were bad at beating up on their own, but, you know, the Greens <laughs> take it to a whole new level. And it's just, for, like, for her, I mean, I don't really know that there's anything she could have said other than what she said, was that it's been hard. Um, you know, her integrity was called into question. It was. And, uh, you know, she's decided that she wants to keep at the helm. And my guess is that she'll, no matter what happens out of this next election, that she's going to have to do some soul-searching to decide if she wants to stay on as leader. What we d- what we didn't garner from the news conference, though, Karen, is what happened to lead to all of this infighting. Well, and that's a question again. Like you know, surely as leader of a party of two, you can figure out what the issues are and come to some resolution. But and the fact that that didn't happen is, you know, speaks to either some deep, deep divisions within the Green Party, um, or the fact that she's just not in the right job. John is the conservative in the group here. Uh, I'll let you go next, <laughs> maybe in part to respond to Karen's comments. <laughs> well, no, thanks for that. But uh, look, they have taken this to a whole new level. Uh, and, and Bob is, is also a, a party member and, and will, will appreciate this because all, all political parties have their, you know, their own infighting that happens. And, and we try to contain it as much as we can so that we don't, we don't air the dirty laundry. But this is just, they've taken this to a whole new level. Like normally political parties will, will sort of, you know, have leadership discussions and infighting after an election if, if the party loses. But to have a, this kind of a display of dysfunction and, and animosity, uh, you know, weeks before an election is crazy. And the fact that they would even think about revoking a membership of their leader, you know, as, as everybody's getting ready and, and touring and doing their, their pre-election, uh, you know, um, you know, just, just it, 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 trips and, and uh, events and this kind of stuff was, was just beyond. They've lost a lot of valuable time, Jane, not only because this kind of stuff is now not only aired publicly, because sometimes a lot of this is inside baseball and it's only sort of, you know, only the political watchers tend to watch. But this kind of news that's been hitting front pages of the papers, leading and, and various networks 
you know, Canadians are seeing this and saying, well, what the heck is going on with this party? And why would I even vote for them? So, but this kind of, this kind of dirty laundry and, and, and stuff that's happening, uh, it's so intense that it's actually hurt them. So the fact that they've kind of revoked or gone back on this is good news for them. But I think it might be too little too late. I think the damage is done. The fact that Elizabeth May was, was, you know, was public on Sunday in some report or some newspaper saying that she was told not to comment on this is bizarre. Like the whole thing is bizarre. And, it, and it's hurt them. It's, you know, it's hurt them immensely. Bizarre is a great descriptive for what is happening in the Green Party. Bob Richardson, what do you make of all of this? Well, two words, amateur hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is uh, it is not good. It is not good for any political uh, any uh, political party to go through this. But I've also not seen a new leader in any major political party go through this in the last thirty to thirty five years. This woman won by twelve. Uh, this woman got twelve thousand votes in an open race. She won by nine points. Winning a leadership by nine points is huge. I ran a leadership once. We won by nine votes. And we didn't put up with any of this sort of nonsense that you see going on. So I think we're seeing a lot of, quite frankly, anti-Semitism. We're seeing misogyny. And frankly, we're seeing some racism, too, as well. It's a bit of a trifecta inside of the Green Party. So, uh, you know, look, there are those who say that uh, she is a difficult leader to deal with. She's not a great listener. Well, I can point to a whole lot of men who fit that description in the last 30 to 35 years who haven't put up with this sort of nonsense. And Elizabeth May's conduct uh, has been not great uh, for somebody who's supposed to be sort of the the, uh, the mother of the party, if you want to call that now, uh, their longest serving member of parliament, a former leader. She should be trying to figure out ways to lower the temperature and make things work for the new leader. And she and her supporters appear to be pouring gas on the fire in the background. Well, so Bob, this has not been this sorry. has not been a great scene. By, by all accounts, Elizabeth May should have given up her seat to Annamie Paul, right? I mean, she doesn't want to be the leader anymore. You don't want to be the leader. The Greens are barely visible in the House of Commons. So why would you not show solidarity and give your seat to the new leader? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and that's, uh, I mean, I don't think Elizabeth Bay ever planned to give up her seat. And that's a personal thing for, uh, for members of parliament. Uh, and I think she enjoys being a member of parliament. So I don't entirely fault her for that, but she could have been way more supporter of, uh, of Ms. Paul. And she just simply has not been. Now, her leadership, Annamie Paul's leadership, could come under review in only a month's time, which means she might not be leader still when Canadians go to the polls, likely late September, early October, although we're yet to get a date on that. Would she still run for a seat in Toronto's centre, where she came second to Liberal Marcy Inn in a by-election last fall? Or do you all think that she would step aside and forget about uh, being part of the House of Commons? Karen? Well, I certainly don't. If if they put her to the side, I, I can't imagine why she would, would want to be part of that uh, circus act. Like, you know, said Bob's point, it's, it's, it's amateur hour. And she's a talented, educated, accomplished woman. <laughs> and, you know, her swan song is not going to be being taken down by the Green Party, I hope. So, you know, if, if they make the decision to remove her, then then I think her decision is, does she get leave politics altogether or does she try to run for another party that she feels that she would be welcome with him. Right. But or, I, I, can't, I can't see why she would put herself out there and run in the St. Paul's riding. She did very well, um, given that it's, you know, a downtown Toronto riding. And uh, for the Green Parties to come close, I think, was a, a victory. And I think, you know, why Elizabeth May didn't feel she needed to give up her seat, because I think it was always presumed that she would run, Annamie Paul would run in St. Paul's. Uh, Toronto Centre, so, right? Toronto's, in Toronto Centre, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, so, you know, I... I, I I, I can't. I can't imagine. I, I just can't imagine the circumstances under which you would want to stay with this party after. Do you particularly think, if they put her to the side? Do you think, John? She might. She would consider running as an independent. Uh, she she could, but she'd have a harder time um, uh, as an independent. You know, independents don't particularly do well 
uh, in, a, in general elections, uh, you know, people tend to vote for party affiliations and, and leaders first and foremost. And uh, so I find that it would be probably hard for her, especially in Toronto Centre, which is a, traditionally a very liberal riding um, and has been for a long time. But the fact that she came in second uh, last time around was actually quite a quite an accomplishment. And and, 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 I, and it made sense for her to want to stick there. She, she's got some roots there. Her family's been there and and uh, so there, there does make some sense that, that, and it's also it's a liberal, it's a liberal centrist writing, uh, which might have some appeal to somebody like an anime Paul, who is an impressive leader for for the Green parties. But this is not helping. Her. Like this is the kind of stuff that people are going to go to the ballot box and say, well, why would I vote for? You know, I might like anime Paul. She might be a great leader, but the party is dysfunctional. Why would I vote for a party that is is looking at you know, replacing a leader weeks before an election campaign? And to your point, though, too, Jane, you know, the council does have a vote coming up on her leadership sometime in August, which mm-hmm. could very well be in the midst of an election campaign. I think all of us are, are probably in agreement that we're looking at a mid-August, early to mid-August election call. Um, and and it would just be absolutely crazy. Uh, again, we'll use the word bizarre, uh, that, that they would have that discussion. Now, after the election campaign, if anime you know, fails to win her seat and, and they don't gain more seats and, and, uh, and keep with the two MPs that they have, there very well could be a leadership review and she may very well be out at that time. Um, you know, but, but that's discussions that all parties have when they lose. They all have leadership review votes post-election campaigns if they lose. So, it, but it's one thing from, from the perspective of the party just to say, let's shelve this. Let's give her back the funding that they originally stopped for her to run in Toronto Centre, which, of course, would be a huge hindrance for her. Let's let her run in this election campaign, and let's all deal with this after the election campaign when we know what's going to happen. She could win five or six or seven seats. Would, would they get rid of her then? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? But it's just, you know, it, it's just bizarre, and, and it's something that I think they're going to have to do some self-reflection after this, because whoever the next leader is, that person is going to have to think to themselves, am I going to have to go through this as well? Because uh, this is a party of Elizabeth May, and Elizabeth May, until she resigns and leaves her seat, uh, you know, will always have the, the shadow of her cast over whoever the leader is. Well, regardless of what they do on August 21st, and it would seem highly unlikely and even more bizarre if they were to vote her out uh, just (laughs) weeks away from a federal election. But, Bob, this is a wounded party. Recent Angus Reid poll reveals 3 percent of Canadians would cast a ballot for the Greens versus 6.5 in the 2019 election. Yeah, look, there's no question that they've got uh, they've got issues. uh, one thing that I would say is uh, Glenn Murray, who ran for the leadership against Anna Mae Paul, a former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister, he was minister of the environment, um, was on Twitter yesterday, and he was blunt and tough. He basically said uh, the leader needs to reach out and do a much better job on that. Uh, the caucus hasn't been supportive. And the organization of the party, he said, basically is a joke. He says they, they don't have the structures in place. And they don't have sort of the conditions that you put in place in order to be organized to try. Oh, we've lost Bob there. Oh, there he is. To sort out. I think it's been more of a movement than a real political party. Mm -hmm. And I I just don't think that they have the structures in place required uh, to elect members of parliament and to try to form a government. And I think we're, uh, we're seeing what was behind the curtain is unfortunately in front of the curtain at the moment. Yes. And that will not be good for them. And that's why they'll probably uh, do very, very poorly in this election. I'm with our strategy panel, our Tuesday strategy panel. It's Jane for Libby, along with Bob Richardson, liberal strategist, senior counsel to national public relations, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. We'll change topics now and talk about the Canada-U.S. border. And by the way, if you want to get in on any of these issues, ask our panelists a question. The numbers to call are 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. The Trudeau Liberals announced yesterday the border will reopen to fully vaxxed Americans August seventh and or August ninth rather, and to fully vaccinated global travelers on September seventh. But there's been no such announcement from the Americans to reopen the border to fully vaxxed Canadian travelers. So I want to get your takes on what 
what you think is happening at the White House that is holding up this announcement. Karen, I'll go to you first. Yeah, you know, I read that, and I and so they I saw that the land border won't open, but but it seems to me that air travel has been quite welcoming to Canadians, right. and uh, certainly by the snowbirds, they've you know taken advantage of their of going to Florida. So it, it 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 seems that you know Canada was the one who had to kind of make the statement about the quarantining, about the staying in the hotel. Like we were the ones that I think that had the more restrictive rules in place. So I you know I, I don't I I don't see it as um, I, I think the Americans don't just see it. They just don't see it in the same way as we do in terms of having to make the announcement because travel's been pretty free in the U.S. for a long time, and they probably didn't even realize that people weren't crossing the border. To be candid, I, I know now it's going to have to figure it out. But the, the, there you know, are like, two borders, right? There's the border that's uh, thirty-seven thousand feet up, and there's the border at ground level. And right. yet, like you said, you can fly back and forth as long as you adhere to uh, the testing requirements for COVID. Um, Bob, what about you? Why would the White House not have made the the same announcement on the same day? Oh, I wouldn't pa- panic too much on this one. I think uh, both governments uh, have to move at a glacial pace. Uh, I know on our side of the border, uh, uh, the prime minister's uh, staff and uh, officials have been working on this for weeks and weeks. Uh, but it's complicated because they have to talk to the provinces. They talk to border communities. There's security uh considerations. Then they go talk to the Americans. On the U.S. side, there's great interest in getting the border open by U.S. politicians, starting with Senator Schumer, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, and a whole variety of other uh, border state politicians. So this will happen. Again, there's just a bunch of uh, T's that need to get crossed and I's that need to get dotted and and a variety of uh, security issues, too, that, uh, that they have uh, concerns with. So I suspect it'll happen shortly. Uh, would have been nice if they were both done at the same time. But I think the government wanted to get on and signal to uh, business and border communities and others what the plan was so that people could organize themselves accordingly. John, do you think there was a little bit of, OK, you go first and then we'll follow or was maybe not as simple as that? No, I think a lot of it had to do with election uh, readiness and, and preparedness and wanting to make sure this kind of announcement was done before any any potential election call. Because it's good news. It, it, it's good news for a lot of the border communities along the, the U.S.-Canada borders and, and a lot of local chambers, uh, large and small, who border the U.S., uh, we're, we're really crying for, for the, for the borders, for the Americans to be able to come over because a lot of their tourism and, and restaurants and, and travel and, uh, touristy, uh, um, you know, businesses were obviously suffering. So it's good news for them. So I, I could see why the prime minister wanted to have this. I think it, you know, it, it was passing strange that we allowed it, but we didn't have the Americans do it. I think Bob's right in that, you know, I think the Americans will probably come in line shortly with respect to allowing us to go, uh, to, to America through land border, uh, as opposed to air border. But I do think that the election timing was important and they probably realized that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a reciprocal agreement between the U.S. and Canada on this anytime soon. Uh, so the decision was probably made, look, let's, let's at least us open up the border for Americans and let's do it now, uh, you know, given the fact that we might be in a red in, in two or three weeks time. On to issues now important to Ontario residents. Here with our strategy panel, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, along with uh, Bob Richardson, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. There continues to be a push uh, for the Ford PCs to make it mandatory for healthcare workers in this province to get vaccinated against COVID-19. The Premier is saying no. He's not even hesitating. No. But will he cave to the pressure? of organizations like the Ontario Medical Association, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, among others. Uh, Karen, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And, um, you know, and right now we don't have to deal with it, to be candid, because we are still um, masking and distancing and wearing protective equipment. And, you know, particularly when I think of my dad's nursing home, you know, they have a 97% vaccination rate amongst the staff, yet everybody is masked, robed, visored, you know, so everybody's acting like we're not fully vaccinated. So there's a a strong uh, argument to be made as well. We're taking all the precautions necessary to contain COVID, the spread of COVID without being vaccinated. So why do I have to get vaccinated? Now, that argument only holds as long as we're still continuing to mask and social distance. 
The real issue will be when the government makes a decision in the fall or doesn't. Like, if, if the government's position continues to be that we need to mask and social distance, you know, at school, in the malls, uh, when we're going about, like, even at the Jays game, which I don't quite understand why we need to wear a mask at the Blue Jays game that's outside if we're sitting in a seat with our family and friends. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if those are the decisions that the government is making, well, then it is actually really, really, really hard for employers, such as myself even, to require people to get vaccinated. So when some of that other public health measures, when they start to get lifted, then that's when the conversation becomes more significant. And and until that happens, I don't think the Ford government is going to mandate anything because it's only a world of hurt. And the argument back to the government is there are less invasive ways to contain the spread of COVID, and they're actually already in place right now. Karen, you mentioned your dad's nursing home. 97% of staff members are vaccinated. That That's impressive. Yeah. Absolutely. And they've been vaccinated for months. But when I go to see my dad, and I'm fully vaccinated, I have been for a month. When I go to see my dad, I have to wear a mask. I have to get screened. I have to be two feet, you know, two meters away from my dad. (laughs) So, you know, at some point, the public is going to rightly say, um, if we are vaccinated and our numbers are low, why do we need to continue with these public health measures? And if it becomes because you know, 10% of the population is not getting vaccinated. That means 90% of us have to continue with the public health measures. Mm. I think that's when the government is going to have a problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, John, what do you think about um, the premier just not even wanting to get into that conversation about mandatory vaccines? Yeah, I don't blame them. And quite frankly, I support it uh, on that issue. I think that, you know, the OMA and the Registered Nursing Associations have spent less time criticizing the government and more time making sure that their members are vaccinated and are are, uh, adhering to all the rules. That's what they should be doing. That's what members pay them for. uh, And they expect some leadership from their organizations. But look, I I think that, you know, Ontario has been really, really strong with respect to people getting their first and second uh, doses of vaccine. I think the vast majority of health workers are uh, double vaccinated. I think that mandating anything with respect to that is is problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and there's why that, you know, certain unions, quite frankly, are supporting the premier by not wanting him to mandate this kind of uh, this kind of thing. But uh, I think, you know, I think most Canadians, most Ontarians, quite frankly, most Canadians, but most Ontarians for sure are adhering to uh, all the rules, as Karen was suggesting, which I think is, is why our numbers continually go down and, and why people are getting vaccinated. I think it's going to plateau at a certain level where people who just aren't, who can't get vaccinated for some immune deficiency reasons or just civil reasons that they just don't want to, I think we're going to hit a certain number, but that number is going to be awfully low, I think, in comparison to uh, to the others and, and will reach herd immunity by, by then, which I think hopefully will put us all in, in, in better shape. Bob, if it means if there is a, a somewhat of a concern uh, that you might lose employees from the healthcare sector, particularly long-term care, if you mandated COVID vaccines, um, I wonder if, you know, you grandfather it for the people who are already in the system and say, okay, I'm not mandating vaccines for you, but you make it a condition of employment for new hires. Is there some sort of halfway that the premier can can meet on this? Well, it strikes me that that makes that's good common sense. And, uh, you know, uh, that's a thing that I think we ought to be looking at. I, I just don't get why healthcare workers can't be vaccinated. It strikes me as very strange that we don't do that. There's a whole variety of other countries and jurisdictions who are mandating it. And I think it's one area that we should. We should. I think we should get tougher on that. Uh, for instance, colleges and universities, if you're showing up on campus, on campus you need to be vaccinated. Uh, I think they're doing it at Seneca College. I think they should be doing it at all of our post-secondary institutions. I agree with Karen, though. We need to pick a lane here. You can't tell people, uh, go out, get vaccinated, do everything that that, uh, we say you're supposed to do. They go out and do it. And then afterwards say, oh, and by the way, can you put on this gown and this mask and stay six feet apart and, Mm -hmm. and fill out the following 93 forms every time you come and visit? Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be some give and take here. And uh, I think if the government has got to uh, relax a lot of its uh, regulations, if people have uh, complied and let people get back to a normal life, I do not want to hear from the public health uh, officials, particularly from Toronto and, and others dictating to me what I'm supposed to be doing in my life for the next six months. Um, I, I want to make those decisions myself. 
and I want to do it as somebody who is double vaccinated and has followed the rules. What I find interesting, so there's been pushback on uh, the healthcare workers and mandatory vaccination, but there seems to be very little backlash after Premier Ford said last week that he is not going to have any kind of Ontario vaccine passport, that that the federal government is handling a passport for international travel, that you have your proof of vaccination that you receive from the Ontario Ministry of Health, which you can print out and show businesses that require it. But that's it non-starter, no Ontario vaccine passport. Karen, I think a lot of people like that because otherwise we're getting into a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of different forms and possibly different passports that we all have to carry around. Well, yeah. And as a, you know, as someone who's trying to reopen a business that's been closed for a year, the added headache of trying to verify someone's vaccine passport would be beyond what I'm organizationally capable or willing to do. And so, you know, add that to retailers, you know, add that to your daily, an individual's daily experience. And to Bob's point, like, I've played by the rules. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've taken my precautions. I've been fully vaccinated. And now before I can go and get my groceries, I need to show you my vaccine passport. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, oh, I shoot, I've got to, I need to run in and get something for my kids. And, oh, no, I can't because I left my, you know, I left my phone at home and that's where my vaccine passport is. Right. <laughs> When you when you think about it, it sounds so good. It, it sounds it sounds like such a great idea, but then practically speaking, it is so difficult to manage from going to the grocery store, going to the gym, going to the dentist, dropping your kids off at school. How does that actually get managed? And I and I think that when you start to think about the implications of all that, the only answer is you need it for travel because that makes sense. You don't need it for daily living because it doesn't. John, do you feel the same, uh, the proof of vaccination from the Ministry of Health and then a federal travel passport? Is that all we need as Canadians? Well, it, it should be. But I also think, too, when you look at vaccine, vaccine, vaccination passports in general, uh, it's hard to sort of allow for the provinces to have to do it themselves and, and have some provinces who want and will install a, a vaccine passport system or regime and another province that doesn't. Uh, that's something that is obviously a federal issue as, as, as passports should be and something that they would have to look at. But look, I think that, you know, businesses will, will make up their mind and will do what they think is right for their own, for their own patrons. And, mm-hmm. and some will require double vaccinating proof, some won't. Um, but I think that over the course of the next number of months, uh, when things get back to normal, I think we'll, we'll be talking about vaccine passports anymore. Bob, final word to you on vaccine passports. Well, you know, let's uh, anything we do going forward should be kept uh, simple and easy for people. Uh, I think we've done a really good job getting vaccinated. I think we should be congratulating people, not penalizing people. Uh, and I think that we need to show that by doing what you've been asked to do, um, it, it helps and it helps us return to normalcy. Not a, not another new a whole set of guidelines and uh, and uh, issues coming from either the city, the province, or the feds. Well, we all agree on that. Uh, thank you all, our strategy panelists, for your time again on this Tuesday. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. John Capabianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. It's Jane for Libby. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, cracking under the pressure of the pandemic. More senior managers in this country are thinking about retiring or making a change. We will discuss us with a panel of experts. We'd also like to hear from you if this describes your situation. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, 
Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. There was a story in the Globe last week that may ring true with many Zoomers in leadership positions. It details how executives and managers simply cannot take life during the pandemic anymore, with just over half of 1,100 business and public sector leaders questioned, revealing they are contemplating leaving their roles and a quarter are considering resigning outright. Many of these individuals are considering moving to a less demanding position or retiring. Joining us for this important discussion to life as a Zoomer during the pandemic, our own demographics expert, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Dr. Rick Hackett, Professor Human Resources and Management of the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and Zabine Hirji, Executive Advisor on the Future of work at Deloitte. Thank you all for joining us. Hi, Jane. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Sabine, tell us about this research and what it reveals about the current mindset of managers and executives. Uh, Thank you, Jane, for for having me. And uh, just a quick uh, maybe comment on context. Um, One of the things we saw was that there was a lot of research done on the entire workforce and on managers, but very little on senior managers as a group, and that's really what drove this this work to focus on them. So what has the research shown us? Um, well, not surprisingly, um, we see that senior leaders actually are um, experiencing um, very high levels of stress, fatigue, and, and it's really upended what n- has normally been the case in, in organizations where the more senior you are, the, uh, the, the mental health and well-being has, has actually shown um, more positive results. And so, you know, we went about trying to determine what's, what's going on here, and uh, we found a few things that... Um, um, that we really need to pay attention to. Uh, the, the first one really is very much around stigma. Um, or leaders uh, have an expectation of themselves that uh, their primary accountability is to people in their organizations, and that's what others expect of them. And so raising the issue about their own state of well-being is um, something that isn't really normalized uh, within organizations, and uh, and and certainly that's something we need to tackle uh, in in terms of you know essentially making mental health is health, and how do you create the culture? How do you create the role models uh, and an environment where uh, people are more comfortable asking for help? Because certainly what we're hearing now is um, high concern for. Uh, what that could mean for their career. It's, I, I'd like to talk about the change in mindset pre-pandemic to 16 months into the pandemic, because that seems to have played a role, perhaps a large role, mm-hmm. in the mindset. So mm-hmm. what is expected of executives, managers now and through the last 16 months that might be leading them to be flat out exhausted or just that they feel they can't do it anymore? Yeah, so... We, and on the one hand, um, their, their work lives have certainly uh, been uh, turned upside down, as it has for, for everyone in the workforce, but certainly uh, reacting to changes, to being able to, uh, you know, the business models have changed, digitization, how are we going to serve our customers, how are we going to keep our employees safe, the, the, the pace and the rate and the velocity of change has, has really been something, um, you know, that we've not seen before. But I think the mindset shift is, is really coming from people taking the time to reflect. There's a lot of self-reflection that's been happening, and I hear that with uh, in conversations that I have with uh, with many leaders, where they're starting to perhaps redefine success, um, and they are. I think they're yearning to make time for all the things that matter, uh, which is more of a 
combination of a meaningful career um, and being able to take care of their family, pursue life interests, whether it's volunteering or painting or rock climbing, the staying healthy, the mid-morning walks, and just being able to integrate fitness into their lives. And I think what they're asking themselves now is, what do I really want? How do I create this uh, balance uh, during my work life that really allows me to do the things that bring joy and, and happiness. So it it really is a great reset opportunity, I think. And in you know, on the uh, one hand, that's quite exciting if we are um, stopping to really think about that. And as leaders, they have the um, they they have the influence and the ability to make changes within their own organizations to allow people to be able to have more of that. Um, that balanced, um, that balanced lives during their work lives, as opposed to perhaps the, the the mindset before, which is you know at some point I'll retire and that's when I'll I'll fill in the voids that I might have had during my very busy hectic work life. I want to put this out to our Zoomer Radio listeners: uh, the person that Zabine Hirji is describing is that you? Is this the place you've come to? Sixteen months into this pandemic, if you if you're a manager or an executive, either in a public or private company, are you starting to feel the winds of change as you as you get to a certain age in, in your your life as a Zoom? The numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I also want to get reaction from our other experts, uh, David Kravitz and Dr. Rick Hackett, on the findings uh, of this survey. David, I know you were probably sitting there nodding your head uh, in agreement with uh, with the way a lot of people are feeling in these roles, uh, so maybe not much of a surprise to you. Well, it wasn't a surprise. It was, uh, it was a couple of interesting things, though, that struck me. First of all, the people they surveyed um, were all working for large organizations that did not go out of business. So take all the stresses that they were under and then add to it, um, what if you were the owner of a store? What if you were the owner of a business that was literally shut down by law? What if your life's work <clears throat> was in jeopardy, if not lost? So if you want to see stress, um, there's even more of that. And then uh, this is not to knock the survey, but I'm just saying there's layers of even more stress that this pandemic has created. The number one reason they gave in the survey was volume of work. But I would wonder whether some of that is volume of concerns, because in addition to getting the job done, I now had to worry about how that's done the neat compartmentalizations that I had before. I go in in the morning, I go home at night, so do all my co-workers. Now their lives are spilling over into it as well. Now I've got, uh, which we talked about, Jane, for months on this uh, program, uh, parents, uh, I'm worried about infection, I'm worried about COVID, whether or not I've got older parents literally in a nursing home, but just more at risk as a population. So you have the shadow of that hanging over every day. Who's gonna, who's gonna, uh, you know, be be uh, infected with the virus, and who's not, and how can I avoid that? So the the list of items on the agenda was overwhelming, and so I'm not surprised to, at, at these results uh, in any way. And I think there was even more pressure depending on. Uh, you know, your individual circumstances, and we know how many businesses have uh, have uh, disappeared or, or, or are hovering on the brink. And I think um, the cost of that in stress and mental health in burdens on our healthcare system um, have yet to be weighed. And I think that that's going to have a very long, long duration where we're going to see those side effects on on. Uh, on the Zoomer generation. Dr. Hackett, what do you make of the results of this finding? What's going on with this older demographic and leadership positions uh, considering big changes? Yeah, so I I think that the the results of this survey probably uh, would be reflected in a survey of uh, other uh, levels of leadership 
maybe exacerbated at the higher levels. But essentially what we're looking at is, um, you know, an individual's sense of well-being is uh, a source of that is having a sense of autonomy, a sense of control over one's environment, right? And so uh, at the time of COVID-19, there's been a lot of additional demands on these senior leaders. And, um, you know, unless resources are brought in to balance out the demands being made, uh, there's going to be heightened uh, feelings of uh, stress and anxiety. So well-being is a function of one's sense of autonomy or control over one's environment, a sense that one is competent, is capable of managing the demands uh, so that they have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do that, which would include not just the technical skills, uh, the hard skills, but the soft skills. And, um, you know, relatedness. All of us want a sense of belongingness and connectedness. And with senior managers, um, you know, where a lot of the communications are now via Zoom or other such platforms, virtual, there is this little opportunity to nurture that sense of belongingness and connectedness, which can lead to a sense of isolation mm-hmm. and lack of, uh, lack of support. I'd like to talk more about that after the break. How much do you think that working from home, which is the case for many senior managers and executives uh, during the pandemic, how that has played into those feelings of isolation and wanting a change uh, for improvement in mental health? We'll talk about that after the break. Also, there is an opportunity for you to share your story as well anonymously uh, if you'd like to remain private in that way, because We know the Zoomer audience, you're a powerful group, Uh, you're educated, uh, you're 45 plus, you're more likely to be in a leadership or management role. So we know you're out there and uh, we know as a result of this Deloitte research that this has been a very challenging time and you may have just had enough for any number of reasons. Your stories are welcome at 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about new research that shows executives, managers in both the public and private sector are, are many of them, like half of them, are thinking about leaving their positions uh, because of the stress that's been caused during the pandemic. And I'm joined by a panel of experts, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Vice President here at Zoomer Media, demographics expert, along with Dr. Rick Hackett, Professor at Human Resources and Management at McMaster University, and Zabine Hirji, Executive Advisor at Deloitte, which provided us uh, with all of this information. Before the break, I was uh, speculating about the working at home part and how much that's played into the frustration, anxiety, a workload, having to, to be a therapist for your employees, how much that has played into having had enough. Um, Zabine, can you comment on that? Yeah, thank you. Um, um, clearly, working from home has had an impact. I will say that there are pros and cons, and uh, uh, there are things people like about working from home and, and don't, and, uh, and I'm a big proponent of a hybrid working where people have uh, really a blend of both. But so what is the, you know, what are the cons or what's playing into this? Uh, one of the things that we saw in the research was the power of peer relationships. Um, almost um, uh, what, 60% of the uh, reported that their peers at work are really helpful in supporting their resilience, yet about a third said these relationships have worsened. And so when you think about how peer relationships are built and nurtured, that a lot of that happens through just connecting in the office, through these collisions, 
that happen where you just say, let's grab a coffee, let's uh, let's go to lunch, let's talk about this. And that's, uh, that's, as the pandemic progressed, that became even more challenging because we had, uh, you know, we had this bank account where we had uh, really sort of built up some of this, um, some of this social capital that's been depleted, mm-hmm. and um, I I see that when now as things are starting to you know open up a little bit and people can meet outdoors even, uh, just how that peer connectivity is so important to our well being. The other thing that. Um, that is also cited is the lack of separation or no separation between home and work. One executive said to me, you know, Zabine, I live in my office. Um, I'm not getting a break. Um, and the often the commute to and from work was that separation, that mental separation that allowed you to um, to to let go of of um, some of what's on your mind related to work and uh, and and move into other parts of your life. Um, and and so the you know the 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 work from home um, has contributed to it. Um, and has maybe given people more time also to appreciate um, some of the positives that come from that. People say, oh, I love having breakfast with my kids. Normally I'm traveling 50% of the time, and I realized I haven't really been able to um, enjoy my children and to be part of, um, of you know, uh, their watching them grow and just the joy that comes from being part of the family, which takes us back to that rethink of what do I really want and um, how am I going to make that happen um, to bring this kind of a, a more balanced approach to living life? Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, that interaction with our work colleagues, it really means so much. Uh, I, I do take your point about having time. If you do have young children at home still, that that is valuable time. But being able to physically go to work, and I've been in that position all the way through the pandemic with my small group of colleagues here, I know we all talk about how much we liked to still go to work. There's that sense of normalcy. And David, you've been you've been working at home, and so you can speak to this personally as well uh, from your expertise. But isolation has to play into frustration, and even that can play into um, working too much, right? Because you're at home, so you feel that pull to your desk all the time. I think, I think that's right. And actually, I can speak to both sides because I, I do work uh, from home, but I have come into <clears throat> the Zoomerplex. I've been on the show live uh, every Monday with Libby a couple of times, come in for meetings. That that frequency is only going to increase, I think, now that, um, you know, like many others, we uh, you know, have uh, both vaccines, and I think you're going to see that hybrid may it may end up being a hybrid model, but there's going to be a return, a significant return. But I want to throw one more thing into the hopper that I think is very stressful, and uh, it does relate to COVID, and it relates to senior management having a layer of responsibility for results, not just for adapting. Okay, we 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 you know we put Zoom in now. We've done something. Not not just for that, but can I get the same results? Can I achieve the same? Thing. I'm under that kind of pressure, and it is the uncertainty. Fifty percent of the people say they want to resign or, or or take a lower job. I think a big factor. I can't prove this, but I think is that they just don't know what landscape they're going to be dealing with and how much longer it's going to last. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this in a different context, Jane, week after week, every Monday on you know, tracking the COVID progress. But look at how the communications change. You can do this. No, you can't do this. Yes, you can do this. So this is safe. This is not safe. Yes, it is safe. And I think the terrain is so uncertain that when you face the prospect of I don't know how much longer this is going to go on. I don't know if there's going to be a fourth wave. I don't know uh, what the future uh, will bring. How much longer can I sustain this when there's no clear roadmap 
for a return to what used to be. And I think that is a very, very lethal <laughs> ingredient in the mix, if you will. Dr. Hackett, and we only have a few minutes left, fascinating topic that we could continue uh, discussing. But I'm wondering for senior managers, pre-pandemic, uh, certainly there would be mental health issues here and there among their employees. But I think there there must be a lot of worry or a lot of shouldering of these concerns around your employees during the pandemic. And and trying to work as a therapist in a sense, but not having that expertise to really know what you're doing. That has to be stressful. Yeah, so it's interesting how the the direction this conversation has gone because I started out by talking about the uh, foundations of well-being is a sense of autonomy, a sense of control, and, uh, you know, comments being made about not knowing what the future brings with regard to COVID-19 and the implications for one's leadership and how that might undermine one's sense of competence and uh, the other pillar of related, uh, the other pillar of, uh, of well-being being relatedness, being able to connect to people um, in, more informally as opposed to having to set up scheduled meetings. Um, all of this is... Um, is uh, critically important for the leaders themselves, but they're looked upon as being the go-to people um, for overseeing the well-being of those who report to them. Right. So uh, that's an added burden, and a sense of competence would come from, you know, uh, providing more in the way of the resources uh, for that through uh, things like peer support, um, uh, removing any sense of stigma of uh, uh, surrounding the challenges one's facing uh, mentally and psychologically and serving. This is an opportune time for these senior leaders to role model, to walk the talk of authenticity and expressing humility that they don't have necessarily all the answers, but they're there in this together with the people who report to them. Um, I also very much underscore the importance, you know, one of the things I work also at home, I haven't taught in class now for over 18 months, uh, but working from home affords me the opportunity to build into my, uh, uh, build into my day uh, more exercise. I have a stationary cycle. I go for walks a lot more often, um, you know, uh, the meditation, nutrition, making sure you get the proper levels of sleep, all that has to be built in yes. because you can't look after others until, of course, you've taken care of yourself. You know what? I think that's a perfect place to leave it, uh, a discussion that could go on for some time, but uh, interesting to think about how a manager's executives are faring at this point in the pandemic. It's um, something you can kind of check in on yourself with, too, and, and, and sort of figure out how you're doing based on what our experts have offered us today. Thank you all for your time. Fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Rick Hackett is Professor of Human Resources and Management at McMaster University. Zabine Hirji is Executive Advisor at Deloitte. And David Kravitz, our own demographics expert, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Jane, for Libby, who returns tomorrow, I will chat with you tomorrow morning on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane. And Bob Comsick has your news up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.